Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It is, as longtime listeners will know, the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. This is week three that we are talking about the probably the best known serial killer of all time, um, certainly the first one. Uh, to really hit international interest. Yeah, to really create, really created the true crime phenomenon in a lot of ways. Really uh, did. Jack the Ripper, part three here. And um, Carrie, in the previous two weeks, I think you've done a beautiful job of laying out the horrible events of <laughs> um, those, what, is this all within two, three months in uh, 1888? The bulk is... is Two months and change, yeah. Um, so the, just a horrible season in uh, a horrible neighborhood mm-hmm. in uh, arguably a pretty tough year. Yeah, so we discussed the murders. We established the situation in 1888 in Whitechapel, London, where they took place. We have the circumstances of the five murders and the lives of the women who were killed. And, of course, we talked about the famous letters purportedly written by the killer and the public reaction to both those and the crimes themselves. Dear boss. Mm-hmm. Saucy Jackie. Saucy Jackie. <laughs> he back again this week and back again next week. Why it's does he have a Jackie song? He's, he's got a little, little theme song. Oh, boy. Well, this week, we're going to finally talk about the biggest suspects in the case, ones that emerged during the crimes themselves, and ones that became the subject of fascination by ripperologists in the 134 years since the murders occurred. He'll take you on a date. He'll cut up your face. No. Saucy Jackie. I don't like that. We're we're not doing the... the, the, He'll take you on a date. He'll cut up your face. That's a little grim, Sean. But you don't... You you didn't see the soft shoe that I had prepared to go with it. Let's keep that soft shoe in the closet for now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, I'm going to leave... A few of the more absurd, at least in my opinion, suspects to you, Sean, to cover next week for your Jack the Ripper conspiracy episodes. I, I don't like it being characterized <laughs> that way, but uh, okay. We Yes, we will talk about the truth that they don't want you to hear <laughs> next week. And that'll also include the royal conspiracy. As I say, the truth <laughs> they don't want you to hear. Um, but now Lizzie you know, has sadly left us, so we can now it can all be told. <laughs> sure. This week, we'll kind of recap the biggest names on the board and maybe decide if we think any of them are really promising options as the Ripper himself or all just a load of bunk. After all your reading, Carrie, do you think, like, would you put money on one of these suspects? No. Unfortunately. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, listeners. Are you sure? It's a very safe bet because it'll probably, it'll never be confirmed. sure. In that case, uh, you'd put a little on everyone, but I don't have a favorite now. But let's begin with some of the suspects that police themselves were interested in at the time, starting with the story of a man named Thomas Cutbush. Oh, boy. I'm not going to... The name speaks for itself. Yeah, I don't have to say anything about that. As the Jack the Ripper Files puts it, quote, Thomas Cutbush was a violent lunatic who almost certainly was not Jack the Ripper. Yet his name is important because without him, there's a good chance that a document which, was formed, which has formed the bedrock of modern Ripper studies, setting the canonical number of his victims at five and naming three major suspects, would never have been written. So we're going to start with him. 
even though he's, again, almost certainly not the killer. But just this very important document was written in connection with police investigating him, basically? Basically, yeah. The story goes like this. The Sun newspaper began publishing a series of articles in February 1894 in which they claimed to know the identity of Jack the Ripper. Well, sure, everybody does. It's leather apron. Duh. (laughs) Well, obviously, it was clearly uh, still an object of fascination even six years after the last canonical murder. The Sun would never actually come out and name the suspect, but apparently it seemed obvious that they were alluding to a man named Thomas Hayne Cutbush, who had been detained as a wandering lunatic at Lambeth Infirmary in March 1891. Uh, Obvious to who? Who's out there really... Uh, Do you have to be really nose to the ground uh, on the uh, ear to the ground, I guess, on the wandering lunatic beat? I guess. Apparently, whatever they said, I I didn't get to see these actual articles, but it it seemed obvious to everyone else. I guess it was like a blind item, you know, that everyone understood to be about this guy. I don't know why. Like that thing with with Tom Cruise and the... uh, The fish? The fish. We won't go into that, but um, interesting Google search for our friends if they want to... uh, Look that up. Boy, I honestly, maybe go to the Mary Kelly crime scene photo before that. (laughs) This is more disturbing. They're both not safe for work. So he's admitted to an asylum in 1891. Hours after, he escaped and stabbed a woman named Florence Grace Johnson and attempted to stab another woman, Isabel Fraser Anderson. He was found and arrested soon after, declared insane, and sent to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. So it seems that the son got a hold of this story, and no doubt due to Cutbush's insanity and penchant for um, stabbing women, women, yeah, uh, they put him forth as their favorite suspect. However, Cutbush happened to be the nephew of a senior metropolitan police officer, Executive Superintendent Charles Cutbush. And authorities were becoming concerned that this relation would lead to accusations that the metropolitan police were covering covering up the identity of the real killer. And so in order to avoid the appearance of covering this up, they brushed it under the rug? No. What they did was ask Chief Constable of Scotland Yard, this is the most British name ever, Sir Melville Leslie McNaughton. Well, I mean, Scottish too. Sir Sir Melville, if you please. Uh, They asked him to prepare a document that refuted the son's claims, um basically saying that this guy wasn't a suspect and never was, and not because of any tomfoolery, but just because he wasn't a good suspect. Top of a bunch of bobbycock. <laughs> it would become known as the McNaughton Memorandum and contains much inf- information that would become the basis of later ripperology. Though Cutbush did indeed not have an alibi for the nights of the murders, McNaughton was able to expose errors and inconsistencies in the son's reporting, which helped prove that Cutbush was not the Ripper. In the memorandum, McNaughton would assert that the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only, establishing the canonical, the canonical five belief, and he suggested that it seems highly improbable that the murderer would have suddenly stopped in November 88. A much more rational theory is that the murderer's brain gave way altogether after his awful glut in Miller's court that's where Mary Kelly, Kelly was killed, and that he immediately committed suicide or as a possible alternative was found to be so hopelessly mad by his relations that he was by them confined in some asylum. Yeah, or um, murdered, like Lenny put out to pasture. Right. You know? um, it, it is 
I love how modern uh, some of those some of the thinking around this case sounds because mm-hmm. again when you watch like Mindhunter on Netflix they're like what do you mean a man who kills for <laughs> sexual pleasure and we'll talk about Mindhunter a little bit but yeah this is really the beginning of profiling and um, and when he says um, they use it when he sa- I think I I said in our last episode this story already was making me think of the man from the train mm-hmm. but when he says the Ripper uh, prob- wouldn't have just stopped. And he must have killed himself or be, been confined. Something must have happened, yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly the same thing that uh, the Jameses said about uh, Henry Miller, is that if he, you know, the murders stop kind of after Velisca, and, and he must have um, died or left the country or... But, been arrested, yeah. yeah. McNaughton gave the names of the three suspects he personally felt were the top contenders for the title of Real Jack the Ripper. Montague John Druitt... Aaron Kosminski, and Michael Ostrog. But we'll start our investigation with Druitt. Now, Montague John Druitt, according to the memorandum, was said to be a doctor and of good family who disappeared at the time of the Miller's court murder, whose body, which was said to have been upwards of a month in the water, was found in the Thames on 31st December, or about seven weeks after the murder. He was sexually insane, and from private info I have... From private info, I have little doubt, but that his own family believed him to have been the murderer. Now, at this time and in this place, sexually insane could have meant (laughs) like he was bisexual. Could be, yeah. But, you know, sexual insanity would certainly help in anyone's quest to become the Ripper. But what was Druitt's deal? He experimented (laughs) with sexual insanity in college. Oh, well, doesn't everyone? Druitt was a barrister who also worked as an assistant schoolmaster at a boarding school. Barristers are lawyers, except they wear wigs. Yes. At the end of November 1888, Druitt was suddenly dismissed from his employment at the boarding school for unspecified serious trouble. Then he apparently disappeared, and his body was found a month later in the River Thames. Now, it's assumed he killed himself. But he didn't kill himself right after when would have been the time of Mary Kelly's murder. He was still working as a barrister up to a week after her death, and his work at the boarding school only ended with his dismissal a couple weeks after that, in late November. So he didn't just immediately kill himself after. Oh, but when you say that, he did kill himself within like a month of Mary Kelly's death? within a month. It's commonly thought that the suicide was the result of his dismissal, because it probably happened right after that. And not a complete loss of sanity post-Kelly's murder, because that might have happened earlier, I assume. I just wish we knew whether his sexual insanity consisted of, like, you know, did he love drawing women who had had their guts cut open? Yes. Well, we're going to get to someone like that a little later. (laughs) Apparently, his own family had their suspicions about his guilt, which, of course, makes for a compelling case, but not to everyone. Inspector Frederick Aberline told the Pall Mall Gazette in 1903 about the Druitt suspicion, quote, I know all about that story, but what does it amount to? Simply this. Soon after the last murder in Whitechapel, the body of a young doctor, and he wasn't a doctor, that was like a belief, but it, it was just an error, uh, quote, was found in the Thames, but there is absolutely nothing beyond the fact that he was found at that time to incriminate him. They only 
I'm sure it only got conflated him being a doctor because they thought he might be the Ripper. Yeah. And people also thought the Ripper might be a doctor. Mm-hmm. There was uh, no evidence that Drew had ever visited Whitechapel, and his suicide note didn't mention anything specifically related to the crimes. It read, Since Friday, I felt like I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me was to die. And this referenced his mother's own break with sanity, which had befallen her the previous July. Okay, so this is just a sad, crazy guy who threw himself in the Thames? Pretty much, yeah. So let's check on McNaughton's next suspect, Aaron Kosminski. And this is one that really pings in my mind as one that is often brought up as a top candidate by like those Jack the Ripper travel channel TV documentaries kind of things. And he's referred to as simply Kosminski in the memorandum, as well as in the notes of Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, who jotted down his thoughts in the margins of Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs. So when Anderson is writing um, about a Polish Jew in the uh, memoirs, uh, Swanson is saying, this is Kosminski. Okay. So... He wrote that this Polish Jew had been identified as the Ripper, but that no prosecution was possible because the witness was also Jewish and refused to testify against a fellow Jew. And so Swanson thought that this was referring to Kosminski. This also does sound like conspiratorial kind of racist thought or rumor, though, right? Well, this is the assistant commissioner's memoir, and he's writing this. So I don't know why he'd make it up. It's a very interesting point. He doesn't he doesn't give any names. Um, but, you know, it's very interesting to think that maybe they did have someone that they wanted to charge, but that they couldn't have this this witness wouldn't testify against them. So they had to let him go. Right. But that could be like his subordinate saying like, oh, she won't she won't say it's him, her, sir. You know how they stick together. Well, researchers are divided on how much credence they give this claim because the identity was never given of the mysterious witness. But it seems likely based on the explanation that it was either Joseph Lewendi who had seen Catherine Eddowes with a man outside of Mitre Square or Israel Schwartz who witnessed the attack on Elizabeth Stride on Burner Street. Both men were Jewish. So if they had been brought to testify against the man that they thought they saw, they might refuse to if he was a fellow Jew. Yeah, Schwartz was then called a racist name and chased down the street like immediately after or something? One of them was, yeah. It's hard to, to keep track. Of Kosminski, McNaughton wrote, quote, This man became insane owing to many years' indulgence in solitary vices. He had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class, and had a strong homicidal tendency. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889. Okay, this this sounds like a candidate, certainly. Mm-hmm. And he was in the area? He was, and he had begun showing signs of mental illness in the late 1880s. He experienced auditory hallucinations and began to believe that a higher power controlled his actions and spoke to him. So he's probably schizophrenic. How often did he call people boss? <laughs> that I don't know. But he also uh, dealt with a paranoid fear of being fed by others, preferring to eat food from the gutter, and he refused to bathe. You know, there's something in between gutter and someone (laughs) feeding you, you know? Yeah, like like cooking for yourself. Yeah. He probably didn't have a home. I don't think he did. 
He would eventually die in an asylum in 1919, but was never classified as homicidal at any point during his confinement. FBI profiler John Douglas, who you mentioned before, and he inspired the show Mindhunter, wrote in his book The Cases That Haunt Us that a paranoid individual such as Aaron Kosminski would have likely boasted of the murders openly while incarcerated had he been the killer. But as he never did so, he felt that it was less likely that he was really the Ripper. Oh, of course. It stands to reason he weighed in on the Ripper case at yes. some point. Well, the cases that haunt us, it's like John Bonet and like, you know, a lot of unsolved crimes. Interestingly, you might remember a few years ago that the news started claiming that the Ripper had finally been identified. Well, their thought was that it was Kosminski. Using the mitochondrial DNA of a um, Siemens Dane found on a shawl said to have belonged to Catherine Eddowes, Kosminski was tenuously linked to the murders. Now, to be fair, and this is not casting aspersions on Catherine Eddowes, um, all of these women were sex workers and potentially had multiple semen samples on their person. Yeah. According to the Daily Mail, the landmark discovery was made after businessman Russell Edwards bought the shawl at auction and enlisted the help of Dr. Jari Luhalinen, a world-renowned expert in analyzing genetic evidence from historical crime scenes. This guy came up in an earlier episode, didn't he? That name sticks with it. Sticks yeah, with I don't it. know. I'm not sure which one. But he is an expert. Using cutting-edge techniques, Dr. Luhalinen was able to extract 126-year-old DNA from the material and compare it to DNA from descendants of Eddowes and the suspect, Kosminski, with both proving a perfect match. Wow. The shawl... You can do that with, like, descendants? Well, yeah. I mean, that's how the Golden State Killer was found. It was, like, some relative of his that matched some of the DNA, but it was enough to be an interesting enough thing for them to bring him in. So the shawl had been said to have been found next to Edo's body soaked in her blood. But of course, with the timing, there's really no evidence for the provenance of this. Uh, There's just a letter from the previous owner asserting that her ancestor had been a police officer involved with the case somehow came into owning this shawl. However, despite the exciting headlines, many experts disputed the findings, with Professor Sir Alec Jeffries, the inventor of genetic fingerprinting, dismissing the claims as unreliable. And he said this is due to the fact that mitochondrial DNA was used, and apparently strands of mitochondrial DNA can be shared by thousands of people, and therefore should only be used to eliminate a suspect, not implicate them. Okay. So that, okay. The March 2019 Journal of Forensic Studies published a study that claimed DNA from both Eddowes and Kosminski was found on the shawl. But again, other scientists dispute the findings. So it's definitely interesting. He's not eliminated, but you can't say it's him just based on this is the impression that I get. Okay. So, I mean, he's the best one we've heard so far. He, Certainly. He, he hates women. He's a violent uh, crazy. Um... Well, I mean, he was never homicidal when he was in custody, but he is not well. So there's that. Didn't you say he didn't like women or was that the last guy already? Uh, I think that was the one before this. Oh, no, no. He had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what McNaughton wrote. He loved, he loved. This was just what he said about him. He loved to rip, like all, (laughs) you know, all the, all the markers. You know. 
So let's talk about McNaughton's last main suspect, Michael Ostrog. The memorandum stated Ostrog was a Russian doctor and a convict who was subsequently detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac. This man's antecedents were the worst possible type, and his whereabouts at the time of the murders could never be ascertained. Now, it doesn't seem likely, based on what we know of him today, that Ostrog was ever actually a doctor. But again, it was one of those things where it was probably just attributed to him. This is a Count von Cosell. (laughs) He was a professional con man and thief using numerous aliases over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this, I don't think this one is like people getting it confused because they think you might have just said he was at some point this is a an hh holmes Mm. which we'll talk more about next week potentially (laughs) spoiler alert ostrog had been jailed for several long periods in his life but his only documented act of violence was when he pulled a revolver on police superintendent thomas oswald when being arrested in 1873 oswald Ostrog's last prison sentence before the murders ended in 1883 when he was released after a harsh decade-long incarceration for the crime of stealing a few books and a silver cup. Very lame is. In 1887... There was a crust of bread in his other hand. Yeah. In 1887, he was arrested once again for stealing a metal tankard from the Royal Military Academy, which is a bold move. Um, It's a real (laughs) high-risk, low-reward maneuver. It's dumb. And he was committed for trial at the Old Bailey. During the trial, he was he apparently began to show signs of insanity and was certified insane and transferred to the Surrey Pauper Lunatic Asylum in Tooting. I think when he was stealing the pewter mug from the uh, army base, that's when he was showing signs <laughs> that's of crazy insanity. Enough, yeah. And uh, at the asylum, his occupation was registered as being a Jewish surgeon. They don't know why the Jewish part figures into his title but. no that doesn't that doesn't track for me at all <laughs> he was discharged in march 1888 and as far as police could tell disappeared for a while he became a suspect at the height of the ripper murders when police decided they were looking for a lunatic with medical knowledge and his file fit the bill his name and description was published in the police gazette in october 1888 and he was eventually apprehended in april 1891 so he was free for the entire span of the killings he was sent to banstead lunatic asylum and was reported to be suicidal but not dangerous to others he was discharged again in 1893 and eventually died sometime around 1904 still committing petty offenses how do you um the first time you went to the hospital, it was as a homicidal maniac, right? No, no. He he was just crazy. He wasn't homicidal. Okay. You didn't just say you didn't say that this guy was a had been put in the hospital as a homicidal maniac? Suicidal but not dangerous to others. That's at the end of the, the entry. What did you say at the he very beginning? He was put on trial for stealing that tankard. Yes. And then he started acting crazy, so they put him in the hospital. Oh. Nothing homicidal. Who did you say was a homicidal maniac? Vi- okay, so Thomas Cutbush was a violent lunatic, but he was also certainly not Jack the Ripper, as mm-hmm. they said. Um, we got Montague John Druitt. He killed himself. Didn't have any violent tendencies. Kosminski um, hated women and had strong homicidal tendencies uh, says McNaughton, but yep. nothing that I read seemed to bear that out. And then this is the guy after that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I thought the first thing you said about him was that he was a <laughs> homicidal maniac. No, no. Okay. Um, so let's see where we are now. So, yeah, it seems to me that there's really nothing in Ostrog's past to suggest he was homicidal. <laughs> As you said, uh, his crimes seem to be mostly little thefts. And I'm thinking that he maybe purposely committed these little offenses to get himself jailed or institutionalized so he would have a place to stay, kind of like a Charles Manson situation. He didn't have a home, so maybe he's just trying to, like, you know, get get anywhere he could get. It beats renting a four-penny coffin in Spitalfields. <laughs> mm-hmm. Later, it was also found that Ostrog was being held in custody in France between July 1888 and November 1888 due to another crime. So this was the period of the Ripper murders. So they didn't know that at the time. This was found years later. But if he really was being held in France in jail, he seems to have a pretty strong alibi for his whereabouts during the 1888 murders. That would, yes, allow me to eliminate him completely. Yeah. So maybe none of the McNaughton suspects did it, but who else do we have? I mean, there are plenty. Uh, There have been over 100 people investigated seriously by researchers over the years. But let's go on to another major name, Severin Klosowski. Um, Oh, can I just say, in the absence of any other, like, really, really compelling direct physical evidence for some other suspect... I, I think I'm a Kaminsky man all the way. Kaminsky Kosminsky, method. yeah. The Kosminsky method. Well, we'll see. But this is Severin Klosowski, also known, known as George Chapman, but he was has no relation to victim Annie Chapman. It's just a, you know, coincidence. I feel like there's going to be a lot of finger pointing at European, Eastern European <laughs> Jews in this uh, neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about it. There already has been. Unlike Ostrog, Klosowski likely did have some medical knowledge. He qualified as a junior surgeon in Poland in 1887 and moved to London later that year to become an assistant hairdresser. But we agree the Ripper needn't have had medical training, right? Right, but that's something that they really believed in at the time. Now, in history, many barbers were also medical practitioners known as barber surgeons who might perform small surgeries, bloodletting, tooth extractions, things like that. This is grim. Yeah. However, in the mid-1700s, the trade of barber surgery was basically eliminated when the College of Surgeons of, in London came into being, kind of cutting out the barber part of the practice and just making it surgery. Well, I'm starting a college of barbers to compete. Right. So, Klosowski was not a barber surgeon, but it is interesting that he had experience in both areas, which were previously known to be related. We'll skip over the time of the Ripper murders for now. Um, Wait, that seems like the most relevant time. Well, we'll go back, but let's go ahead to 1889 when Klosowski married a woman named Lucy Badursky. By 1890, he was working at a barber shop in George Yard off the Whitechapel High Street, which is where the first murder took place, I believe. This is after, but it's interesting. At last, his right arm is complete again. (laughs) You can be a barber again. Severin and his wife Lucy moved to America in 1891, and he established himself as a barber in Jersey City, New Jersey. Hey, you can be a barber again. Following a violent argument, Lucy left George to return to England, where she gave birth in 1892. A few weeks later, Klosowski returned to London, and though the pair were reunited for a short period, 
George would soon move in with another woman, coincidentally named Annie Chapman, not the victim Annie Chapman. Wow, really? Yes. Well, this is long after her death, right? Or a couple of years. Yes. And he lived with this Annie Chapman from 1893 to 1894. She left him, but Klosowski took her surname, Chapman, and refashioned himself as George Chapman, probably trying to fit in more with the, the British society. Again, in this neighborhood, you, you cannot blame him. Yeah. His next lover was named Mary Spink, a woman who he said he married. A real Casanova, George is. <sighs> We're not even done. Uh, she died on Christmas Day, 1897. His next wife... And I'm not sure if he ever officially divorced Lucy or not, but let's just assume so. Um, I mean, maybe he was a bigamist. I don't know. These are happening fast, too, right? He's just like, you! Yeah. Grabs one. So his next wife is Bessie Taylor, and she would die in February 1901. Chapman uh, married again after this to Maud Marsh, who also died in October 1902. Okay, wait a second. How did the last one die? How did those those last two women die? Well, Marsh's family became pretty suspicious, and they had their doctor examine Maud's body. And then the bodies of the two former wives were exhumed, and trace amounts of poison were found in all three. So I guess they didn't think it was a poisoning until this happened, and then they dig them up and they find the evidence. But you're not always doing aut- autopsies to look for poison when you think someone has just died. Serial poisoning of wives. Mm-hmm. He's a black widower. He is. At this point, Chapman was arrested, found guilty of the poisoning murders of the women, and was executed on April 7, 1903. During the trial, the Pall Mall Gazette sought out Inspector Aberline to get his opinion on if this lady killer could also be that other lady killer. Because I see why, because uh, right after the Ripper killing stop, he pretty much starts getting married and then murdering his wives. Mm-hmm. Aberline admitted that he hadn't suspected Chapman until the attorney general had made the opening statement at Chapman's trial. Um, But at that point, he had been, quote, so struck with the remarkable coincidences in the two series of murders that he had not been able to, quote, think of anything else for several days past. Okay. Now, I don't really see it. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, in most places, the things Aberline says uh, seem... You know, pretty, uh, if not forward-thinking, at least like he's a thinking detective. He's an astute uh, policeman. I see very little similarity between these murders. Yeah, I mean, poisoning is really one of the more non-violent seeming, at least, ways to commit murder versus ripping, which is the most violent. But Aberline elaborated that, quote, There are a score of things which make one believe that Chapman is the man like his experience with surgery and his arrival in England coinciding with the beginning of the murders. The murders also ceased quite coincidentally around the same time when Chapman moved to America. Aberline stated that in America after Chapman arrived, quote, similar murders began to be perpetrated after he landed there. But he doesn't really give the specifics of which murders he's referring to. Um, The Jack the Ripper Files notes that there were no Ripper-like murders in or around New York during his time in the area, and the only murder that could have possibly fallen into this category was that of Carrie Brown, whose body was discovered in a room of the East River Hotel in Manhattan in April 1891. Now, she had been mutilated, but we don't know the exact details, and it appears to have been a one-off murder. There wasn't like a string of killings like that at the time. 
When did uh, the man from the train start killing? Was that 1898 or so? Oh, you're gonna you're gonna have to let me know. I'm I don't remember. Yeah. So I mean, maybe maybe I'll elaborate on this next week. I don't think so. Um, but maybe you know, old Jackie, saucy Jackie, moves to the U.S., <laughs> takes ten years off, and then starts a murder spree that uh, lasts until 1912. Sure. I don't think so, but sure. <laughs> There's no similarity between the MOs there either. <laughs> yeah. And to me, uh, Klosowski, a.k.a. Chapman, just really doesn't fit either. He was a killer, but and, you know, he must have been a woman hater, but he simply just didn't kill his wives in any way si- similar to the Ripper killings. Poisoning is detached. You don't get your hands dirty. And the Ripper was literally up to his elbows and guts during his crimes. No, maybe he loved women, and he just kept poisoning wives because he (laughs) wanted to have more of them. I don't know, but this is the complete opposite MO to me, and it's enough for me to eliminate Klosowski from my own personal suspect list. Yeah, fair enough. I'm right there with you. Now we'll discuss other suspects, including a quack doctor, an abortion specialist, a man we've mentioned in previous episodes, and even some more well-known names after the break. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome back to the Jack the Ripper Suspect Roundup. We got through five candidates in the first, in the uh, in the A block, if you will, Carrie, industry term. Sure. Um, long-time listeners will be familiar. Caroline, we've got several more, at least four or five more suspects to go here. And um, would you say they're going to get more or less far-fetched from here? Yes. <laughs> it's really... It's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I I couldn't tell you. But let's jump back in with the story of another contemporary police suspect, Francis Tumblety. Francis. Now, his name makes him sound like he's a cuddly cartoon bear of some sort. But Tumblety was actually an Irish-born quack doctor who made his way to America with his family a few years after his birth in 1833. Tumblety made his way onto the suspect list fairly recently when 1993 crime historian Stuart P. Evans found a 1913 letter by Chief Inspector John Littlechild in the papers of journalist George Sims. I love that new suspects are being added in the 80s. This is 93. 90s. So Littlechild was the head of Metropolitan Police's secret department. Don't know why it's a secret. I don't know why we know about it if it's supposed to be. Uh, And he was the head of this department during the time of the Ripper murders. Sims, a journalist, had sent him a letter asking if he had heard of a Dr. D in connection with the Whitechapel killings, which was likely a reference to Montague John Druitt, who we talked about earlier. Little Child responded to Sims that he hadn't, but that amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one, was a Dr. T, who was an American quack named Tumblety. 
Okay, so th- there's our buddy. Mm-hmm. There's our old friend Francis. Mm-hmm. Tumble Tea moved all over America peddling his patent medicines like Tumble Tea's Pimple Destroyer and was even arrested in 1865 in St. Louis for alleged complicity in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which I really did not think would figure into this episode. No, we were just talking about uh, uh, Honest Abe's murder early t- earlier today. As we do. As we do. Uh, what role did Mr. Tumbletee play? Well, the police apparently believed he was an associate of David Harold, who had been captured with John Wilkes Booth. Tumblety denied any association, and there was no real evidence, so he was released. He was also later arrested in New Orleans in 1881 for pickpocketing. So, Okay, so that's I don't see a clear line to ripping from the pickpocketing. Well, Tumblety apparently enjoyed proclaiming his hatred for all women, but especially <laughs> sex workers. Okay, yeah, so so in what way was he different from every man in Whitechapel in uh, uh, 1888? He blamed his misogyny on a failed previous marriage to a prostitute, and when he lived in Washington, D.C., he proudly displayed his collection of uteruses preserved in jars to his guests at an all-male dinner, dinner party, boasting that they came from every class of woman. Um, okay. So that's alarming. Red flag. <laughs> Tumblety visited Europe several times over the years. In the 1996 book Jack the Ripper, First American Serial Killer, Stuart Evans and Paul Ganey would provide evidence that Tumblety was a temporary resident in a Whitechapel boarding house during the Jack the Ripper murders, and they pieced together a case suggesting that he was the culprit. Was he Was he there for all three months of this story? That I'm not entirely sure. I wasn't able to get a hold of this particular book. Um... But he was arrested by Metropolitan Police on November 7th, 1888. So he was there two days before the murder of Mary Kelly on charges of gross indecency for being caught engaging in a homosexual encounter. Boy, and when you're grossly indecent in Whitechapel? Well, it was because the the encounter was was homosexual, yeah. He apparently put up the bail of 300 pounds, equivalent to about 36,000 pounds today, and knowing Scotland Yard was now interested in him in connection to the Whitechapel murders, fled to France on November 20th and returned to the States on the 24th. Now, I don't know if he was already out on bail by Mary Kelly's murder, but it is an interesting possibility that he was around and could have, you know, committed that last crime. And I'm not sure what prompted Scotland Yard's interest in him specifically, besides being a doctor... But, you know, the the crime, quote unquote, of homosexuality is very different than what the Ripper had been up to. As is the pickpocketing, frankly. Uh, Well, more criminal than the the homosexuality, (laughs) certainly. But, uh, you know, again, it's a far cry from murder. I'm assuming that anyone that was arrested or put in in an asylum at this point that had any sort of medical background was sort of being flagged. Because that was their main thing, is that they thought this guy who was Jack the Ripper, had a medical background. Hey, did he say where he got the uteruses? Not in that case, no. Mm, don't love that. Interestingly, Tumblety's arrest was reported in the New York Times as being connected to the Ripper murders. This just in, weirdo is weirder than we thought. <laughs> Tumblety would evade extradition and eventually died in St. Louis in 1903. 
It has been noted that his appearance and older age did not match any of the description given by witnesses who had seen mysterious men with the victims before their deaths. And given his relatively tall height at 5'10 and enormous mustache, he probably would have been conspicuous, but who knows? Oh, dear. Next, we have. That's how I picture a tumble tea. Sure. Well, that's what I said. He's like a cartoon bear. Next, we have Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, who has a name that just makes me very uncomfortable. Yes, Dr. Cream at your service. Oh my God, he has Jack's voice. Cream was born in Scotland in 1850 and would eventually become known as the Lambeth Poisoner. Again, this is the wrong MO, but uh, I'll hear you out, Caroline. Yeah, Cream was a serial killer along with being a doctor who targeted mostly lower class women and sex workers seeking abortions by poisoning them poisoning them with strychnine. Strychnine? Strychnine. Strychnine. Uh, over the period of 18... 18- 81, I believe, to 1892 in three different countries. So I think there was 10 people he killed altogether. But before that, Cream was raised in Canada, had his postgraduate training in London, and then returned to North America to practice as a physician. Here he met Flora Brooks in 1876, and she became pregnant a few months later after a promise of marriage from Cream. He attempted to perform an abortion on her, but failed, leaving her severely ill. He then attempted to escape to Montreal, but was caught by Brooks's father, who forced him to return and marry her. This is very grim. Yes. Were the poisonings actual murders, or were they like accidental results of bad surgeries? We're getting there soon, but they are murders. Um, so the day after the wedding... Cream returned to England to continue his medical education and would never be heard from by the Brooks family again. And though Flora recovered from her botched abortion, she would die of consumption soon after in 1877. Over the years, Cream's specialty, uh, strangely enough, would become performing secret abortions, with a special emphasis on offering these illegal abortions to prostitutes. Several women died in his care, but that was unfortunately par for the course for these procedures at that time. His first purposeful murder, at least that we know of, was in 1881 when patient Daniel Stott died from strychnine poisoning in Illinois after Cream supplied him with an alleged remedy for epilepsy. Cream attempted to blackmail the pharmacist after this, but was arrested along with Stott's wife, Julia, who had allegedly become Cream's mistress and had procured poison from him to kill her husband. Oh, this is very interesting. Very dramatic. And Daniel Stott's grave, by the way, reads, Daniel Stott died June 12, 1881, aged 61 years, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. Choose petty. Choose Mm -hmm. petty every time. Mm -hmm. And call out Dr. Cream. Ugh. Cream was sentenced to life imprisonment, but released in 1891 after his sentence was commuted. What? What? By whom? The governor, after a bribe from his brother. But you'll notice that Cream was in jail during the Ripper murders then, right? Um, Yes. Uh, Cream did move to London in 1891, where he began poisoning sex workers to induce their deaths. And he was eventually arrested in 1892, found guilty, and sentenced to death. So he did a separate string of Whitechapel murders. Yes, and he was hanged at Newgate Prison on November 15th, 1892. So why is there the theory that Cream was the Ripper if he wasn't even present in Whitechapel during the murders? 
Great question. <sighs> this is going to be weird and dumb. But apparently, Hangman James Billington alleged that Cream's last words on the scaffold were, I am Jack the... So I guess he was maybe <laughs> maybe interrupted by like a sudden drop before he could finish the sentence. Jack the what? You're Jack the what? Police officials and execution attendees made no mention of these words, but perhaps Billington was the only one who could hear him because he was the hangman and he was closest to him. I am dead, Cooper. Ripperologist Donald Bell speculated that Cream had bribed officials and had been let out of prison before his official release, which is not too crazy because he was bribed to be released when he was anyway and sir edward marshall hall suspected that cream's prison term had been served by a lookalike in his place well okay now we're getting into william shears campbell territory yeah it must be said that these possibilities are very unlikely and contradict all known evidence given by the illinois (laughs) authorities newspapers of the time cream's solicitors cream's family and cream himself one biographer suggested that Cream was so frightened on the scaffold that he had lost control of his bodily functions and had stammered, um, I am ejaculating, which Billington could have mistaken for I am Jack. I don't think you have to go that far. I think to... that's, a, that's a lot to explain that. Yeah, that's a real stretch. Maybe he just <laughs> misheard anything else. Yeah, or maybe Billington made it up. I don't think we have to... We have to go that far. Why would he whisper it to him? I don't, I don't buy I'm, it. I'm having one. <laughs> He's a poisoner. He targets sex workers. But the MO itself is just so different. And he was in jail. We're pretty sure he was in jail. But l- let's, let's keep going. Let's move on to a name that you may recognize from last episode. Joseph Barnett. Now, this is the um, fish-smelling lover <laughs> of Mary Kelly. Yes, he was an out-of-work fish porter and had been the lover of final Ripper victim Mary Jane Kelly. And she is essentially, at this point, living in his house without him. And every now and then he comes over and brings her money while she hangs out with her girlfriends. Yeah, he had basically just recently moved out of their shared apartment. Uh, He mostly disappears from records after Kelly's death and the inquest, popping up in 1906 and 1919 registers living in Shadwell and in dying in 1926. At the time of Kelly's death, Barnett had recently been fired from his job and had had a violent fight with Kelly on October 30th, which, like you said, forced his moving out of the shared flat. But they did remain friendly, he would give her money when he had it, and he had visited her just a day before her death. Simping for it. Mm-hmm. Barnett became a suspect in 1972, when an article published by True Crime magazine by former British detective Bruce Paley suggested he could have been the killer. According to Paley's theory, Barnett was so desperate to get Mary out of sex work that he uh, started murdering other local prostitutes to basically scare her straight. Yeah, I've heard this theory before. And then like he's sort of getting closer to Mary, like mm-hmm. killing closer friends of hers as he goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, could be. Kelly had apparently stopped sex work for a while after the murders began out of fear, but when Mary invited fellow prostitute Maria Harvey to room with her, Barnett was incensed, causing the October 30th fight. Then, Paley argues, after some frustrated attempt at reconciliation, Barnett arrived unexpectedly the night of November 9th at his former lover's room. They argued more, and Kelly eventually gave him a definitive rejection, 
and overcome by uncontrollable jealousy and rage, he murdered her. According to casebook Jack the Ripper, Joseph Barnett by Frederick Walker, here are the main arguments that scholars use to support his inclusion as a suspect. And this is taken word for word. One, he would have kept the key to the room he shared with Kelly and after completing the homicide, went out and locked the door using that key, which had not been lost as he falsely claimed. Two, his physiognomy resembled the person who was described accompanying some victims before their murder. Above all, age and height match. Three, he dealt in the center of the Whitechapel district in 1888 where the crimes occurred. Four, he most likely met the other murdered women who would have let their guard down in his presence, a circumstance that explains why they did not defend themselves when attacked. Five, it was learned and he admitted it himself to the authorities that days before the murder, he had quarreled with Mary Jane Kelly. The fight. Six, it was speculated that Catherine Eddowes suspected he was the killer, as she told one pensioner. Her murder could have been consummated to eliminate a dangerous witness. Seven, after Annie Chapman's death, an envelope that belonged to Barnett was found in the courtyard of Hanbury Street, who, and he could have lost it when he committed the murder. Eight, he was of Irish origin, so he could have written the from hell letter a George addressed to George Lusk, which apparently contained idioms from Irish language. I'm not sure which. Nine. As a fish porter, he filleted fish and possessed an appropriate weapon that matched the knife with which the killer inflicted the cuts to his numerous victims. Ten. On September 30th, 1888, the night of the double event, the escape route taken by the murderer led to Barnett's home. He could have even washed his bloody hands in a fountain near Miller's Court, where he lived at the time. 11. A tobacco pipe of his was found on the scene of Mary Jane Kelly's murder. If he had taken all of his belongings a few days before and no longer returned to the place, as he said, it is not explained why this object was there. Now, we know he did visit, so maybe he left it, but maybe it's something that people think he might not have left because maybe it was his only one. Right, and nicotine's an addiction, so... 12. He had a reason to perpetrate the excesses of Jack the Ripper. He was not alienated or psychotic, but an intelligent and cunning individual who, precisely because of these characteristics, the police never managed to catch. Now, there's also a good amount of crossover with Barnett's uh, psychological profile and the FBI psychological profile of Jack the Ripper. I want to respond to a few of those things. Sure. What was the first one again? Uh, The key to the room. But we know oh, we, we know that Mary was able to get into the room through the broken window. Yes. So that's not definitive to me. Yeah, and and not even super relevant because he also would have. Yes, he said the key was lost, which is why they were getting into the room through the window. But he could have just lied about it. Is basically what they're saying. Right. But it doesn't really matter. He could have gotten in either way. Um, average height, average average age isn't a thing. But he's just a young man of roughly average height for the time and place, right? I assume so. So that doesn't really do anything for me. Um, when it said his escape route, the Ripper's escape route read light, led right to Barnes's home. How do they know that? Um, I think this was the one where the killer had left the um, scarf or whatever, or the, the apron. And so that was in the direction Oh. Of his home, I assume. I see. Um, 
I wrote something about everyone has knives. Oh, everyone has knives. Yeah, but That's he, he was uh, particularly skilled with knives. Okay. From filet and fish. All right, but I don't know if we need, you know, <laughs> someone to, who's especially skilled to make a big hole and I then know. pull some intestines out. <laughs> um, he, I guess here's my only hesitation with Mr. Barnes is it's... Barnett. Mr. Barnett is it seems like a really extreme route to yes. getting your girlfriend to hang up the act. And uh, what it looks an awful lot like, as we've mentioned before, is like the escalation of a psychosexual murderer. Yeah. Now, uh, like I started to say before, there is a lot of crossover with Barnett's psychological profile and the official FBI profile they came up with for Jack the Ripper. So let's see what that is. So Barnett, he was... 30 years old in 1888, white, and he spent his entire life in Whitechapel in the surrounding area. The FBI says that their suspect is white, between 28 and 36 years old, living or working in the Whitechapel area. Okay, so that checks off. Barnett's father died when his son was only six years old. FBI profile says that in childhood, the father figure presumably was absent or passive. Barnett worked at a fish market and was undoubtedly experienced in cleaning and filleting fish and handling a knife. The FBI says the killer probably had a profession in which he could freely experience his destructive tendencies. Barnett was interrogated for four hours after Kelly's murder, but the police seemed satisfied with his testimony and subsequently did not appear to suspect him. The FBI says the killer probably stopped killing because he was arrested for another crime or because he felt close to being discovered. And finally, according to contemporary news, Barnett would repeat the last words spoken by his uh, interlocutor at his interrogation. So this would be an indication that he had echolalia or some sort of speech impediment where he would say the words that someone had just said to him. Is that something people, anyone else said that he would do normally? I mean, I think it was just, you know, it was part of his interrogation. It was in the notes. And the FBI says that the killer probably had some sort of defect, which very often generated frustration, anger, or disappointment. So that could be it. Who knows? Now, the last two suspects we'll discuss today are two with more recognizable names to a good amount of the world at large. Lewis Carroll and Walter Sickert. Lewis Carroll? Yes. You may know Lewis Carroll as the pen name of Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Apparently, he could be a brutal murderer, too. In the 1996 book Jack the Ripper, Lighthearted Friend by Richard <laughs> Wallace. You're really reaching there, Wallace. <laughs> Uh, Wallace proposes a theory that the British author and his colleague Thomas Vere Bain were responsible for the murders based primarily on a number of anagrams derived from passages in two of Carol's works, The Nursery Alice, which was an adaptation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for younger readers, and the first volume of Sylvie and Bruno. Oh, this is interminable. Continue. <laughs> Uh, you, you don't even know. Okay, so these were both published in 1889 and were likely being written as the murders were taking place. Wallace, much like a Paul is dead true believer, claims that these books contained purposeful, hidden, detailed descriptions of the murders within anagrams. Turn me on, Devin. So here are some examples. So first we have a famous verse from Jabberwocky, which is fucking... 
ununderstandable. Just, just. I love Jabber. Well, that's the I point don't, of it. I don't like Lewis Carroll, but yeah. Snickersnack. Whatever. So, twas Brillig and the slithy toves did. Gyre and Gimble in the Wabe, all. Mimsy were the Bora Groves and, and the, the Momraths outgrape, of course. So fucking stupid. So, Wallace has swapped around the letters to form an anagram, which becomes. Bet I beat my glands till with hand sword I slay the evil gender, a slimy theme, borrow gloves, and masturbate the hog more. He's really stuck on the penis parts of this. Clearly. Next, we have a bit from the book, The Nursery Alice. He doesn't translate the rest of... Well, that's just one of the the portions that he took out. So the original of The Nursery Alice goes, So we went to the cook and we got her to make a saucerful of nice oatmeal porridge. And then we called Dash into the house and we said, Now, Dash, you're going to have your birthday treat. We expected Dash would jump for joy, but it didn't one bit. Rearranged by Wallace, it becomes, Oh, we, Thomas Bain, Charles Dodgson, coited into the slain nude body, expected to taste, devour, enjoy a nice meal of a dead whore's uterus. We made do, found it awful one, and torn like a worn, dirty goat hog. We both threw it out. Dash, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Like, the it doesn't even make that much sense. Yes, exactly. A torn, Not like Lewis Carroll's making sense anyway, but... A torn, dirty goat hog. Yeah, like, what? What are you even saying? There are some problems with the theory, Sean. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, including the complete lack of tangible evidence. I think it's ironclad. And there's the fact that from August 31st to September 30th, 1888, when the first four murders took place, Carol was vacationing in East Sussex and nowhere near Whitechapel. <laughs> On November 9th, when Mary Kelly was killed, Carol was reportedly with his so-called accomplice, Bain, in Oxford. There is also the issue that basically anything can be made into a so-called damning anagram. After Wallace published an explanation of his research in Harper's Magazine, anagram aficionados Frankus, Frankus, Francis Haney and Guy Jacobson pointed out that similarly incriminating anagrams could be found in the words of Wallace's own book. Haney and Jacobson took the first three sentences from the book, which were, This is my story of Jack the Ripper, the man behind Britain's worst unsolved murders. It is a story that points to the unlikeliest of suspects, a man who wrote children's stories. That man is Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, author of such beloved books as Alice in Wonderland. So they turned that into an anagram. The truth is this. I, Richard Wallace, stabbed and killed a muted Nicole Brown in cold blood, severing her throat with my trusty shivs strokes. I set up Orenthal James Simpson, who is utterly innocent of this murder. P.S. I also wrote Shakespeare's sonnets and a lot of Francis Bacon's works, too. Oh. Obviously, Richard Wallace did not kill O.J. Simpson's uh, ex-wife, Nicole Brown. He did not write Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, but, you know, it's just a, an example of how you can make an anagram out of anything, really, if you want to. It, actually, they made much better anagrams than... It made more sense. Than his, yeah. Carol was voted by the staff and readers of the website Casebook Jack the Ripper as being the least likely <laughs> suspect of 22 options to be Jack the Ripper. And one of them was Walt Disney, oddly <laughs> enough. Well, one of them was Walter Sickert, 
a famous painter and printmaker who influenced British avant-garde art in the mid and late 1920th century. But was he also creating sick and violent art with the bodies of the canonical five? I'm going to guess the answer is no, but uh, (laughs) why don't I indulge you? In 2002, crime novelist Patricia Cornwell, who you may know for the K. Scarpetta mystery series, published the book Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed. In it, she applied forensic techniques to the case and came to the conclusion, as she told the TV show, that I do believe 100% that Walter Richard Sickert committed those serial crimes. 100%? Okay, here we go. Where's the evidence? Cornwell's theory begins with a series of painful operations Sickert had in childhood for a fistula of the penis. Year of the fistula. Well, but this is a penis fistula, which is horrifying And less fashionable, presumably. You would hope. Cornwell theorized that Sickert had been left impotent by these surgeries and had developed a pathological hatred of women as a result. Okay, but she doesn't know this. It's her hypothesis. To illustrate this misogyny, Cornwell pointed to a series of pictures Sickert painted which were inspired by the murder of Camden Town sex worker Emily Dimmock in 1907. So this is kind of like what you were joking about earlier, drawing bodies with entrails hanging out. Right. Because these paintings bear a striking resemblance to the post-mortem photographs of the canonical five. Aren't there only photographs of one of them? Well, no, there's there's postmortems of all of them, I believe, in the mortuary. But um, Mary Jane Kelly was the only one that was photographed... At the crime scene. At the crime scene, yes. Cornwell also felt that Sickert had written the Jack the Ripper letters as well and funded DNA tests on stamps and envelopes that she believed Sickert had licked uh, and funded some comparisons to DNA found on the Ripper letters. A possible match was found on the stamp of the so-called Dr. Openshaw letter. But again, these comparisons were based on mitochondrial DNA. And we already discussed how that isn't really specific enough to nail down a killer's true identity. And even if he did write that letter, as we know from the last episode, there's a lot of argument on if any of the letters were written by the real killer and not one or more hoaxers. So maybe he did write it as a hoax. We don't know. Just a lower grade psychopath. Mm -hmm. There also isn't proof that Sickert's medical issues in his youth caused impotence, especially considering his first wife sought a divorce on grounds of adultery. And (laughs) Sickert was known to have had several mistresses and rumored to have fathered an illegitimate son. It seems, at the very least, uh, that a guy who couldn't... um, get it up, so to speak, uh, would likely not have had a fleet of mistresses. <laughs> a fleet? A harem. Sickard may also not have been in England when some of the murders took place. Letters from some family members at the time seem to point at him holidaying in France during at least a portion of the killings. Now, Sean, I know that this is only an overview of something like eight or ten of the suspects and I know you'll be covering a couple more next week, but there's really no way to dive into all of the ones on the list. Like like I said, people have seriously investigated like at least 100 named people. I do hope that I picked some of the biggest names to get into today, but listeners, if you want to learn more, please head over to jack-the-ripper.org or check out those books that I mentioned previously if you'd like to figure it out for yourself from the full 
list or or else we'd have like a 20 part series on this. Me, I still don't know who I think may have done it. Um, but Sean, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any favorites? Well, I think there's only two people who you've mentioned in this podcast who, in my view, even have circumstantial evidence linking them to this crime. Mm-hmm. And that would be um, our old friend Kuzmis- Kuzminski, mm-hmm. the uh, renowned hater of women and violent <laughs> maniac mm-hmm. who was in town at the time. Mm-hmm. Um and Barn Barnett Barn Barnwell Joseph Barnett yeah yeah Barnett Mary Kelly's ex Mary Kelly's um, simp who you know again it it doesn't really look like the work of somebody going like I'm gonna scare my girlfriend yeah. off this job but at least there were at least you know there there was evidence and and reasons around. Uh, that guy. I'm not convinced by the wife poisoner. I'm not convinced by the other poisoner. <laughs> so many poisoners. So many poisoners. Nobody who, like, the person who did these crimes would never poison someone. Do you think there's it's, a... Po- what, what, what is the fun of poisoning someone? You, sure. don't, you don't get to play around with their guts and do all that stuff. Yeah. Do you think there's a possibility that someone killed the first four and then Barnett killed Mary Jane Kelly in, like, a jealous rage? No. I think the... You think all of these five murders were definitely the same person? The first, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but the first one in the double event, mm-hmm. you could convince me is a different person and just a completely unrelated murder of a sex worker, which probably was, ha- I mean, seems to have been happening not infrequently at the time and place. Uh, but the other ones have su- such an MO. Yeah. The opening of the belly, the pulling out of the intestines and the organs. Taking of some of the organs. Yes. And the, and then the weird cuts to the face and everything. Little triangles on the face. He gets to um, he gets to start putting intestines over shoulders. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a, a move. And, and mm-hmm. it's kind of building and advancing from murder to murder. Um, so, no, I think they were all the same person. I do think Mary Kelly was his kind of, you know, masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I don't know if he stops killing. I don't know what happened to the guy. Um, maybe we'll talk about it next week. Um, because, you know, there's there's a lot of possibilities we haven't touched upon here. And most of them uh, are stupid, but all of them <laughs> are fun. Like, um, perhaps there were other reasons besides sexual mania that these women were killed. Maybe it was to someone's political advantage. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was to someone's magical advantage. <laughs> yeah, well, we are going to talk about that. But I do agree. I think those are probably the two most promising, at least of this group. Um, do you like one better? I think I like Kaminsky the best. Pro- Kaminsky? Pro- Kuzminski. Yeah, probably him, just because... Listen, the DNA doesn't eliminate him. I mean, it doesn't implicate him, but it doesn't eliminate him. So that's interesting. It, it goes um, part of the way toward implicating him, I guess. Again, we don't even know if this this evidence is real. But, you know, the timing works out right. And on so many of these, it's so weird how the timing just does not work. And they're still, still suspe- like suspected by people. Um, I think Barnett's very interesting. I think the idea of him doing this as like a warning to Mary Kelly and then just killing her at the end is a bit of a stretch, but you know, I could see him seeing this world that his girlfriend is in that is that in his 
view might be like poisoning her mind, turning her against him. And so he starts uh, killing and then they have this terrible fight and it's like the final blow. I don't think it, I don't think it's the motive would be like, oh, I'll scare her from sex work. And then, then he just kills her anyway. I don't know. I think it would be a different motive, but you know, again, he was around. He had gone through some major negative events of losing his job and um, losing his girlfriend and his home all in the same time period right before Mary Kelly's death. So it, it, it does seem like something that could make someone go off the deep end, but I don't know. Maybe next week I'll decide that it was all a magical ritual. Who, who knows? Oh, we haven't even mentioned William Gull yet. I cannot wait. Me either. But until then, um, yeah, I, I don't have any any set solid favorite. But I think those two, those two are probably the most likely. Well then, listener, until that next week's episode, we leave you as we began on a blood-soaked, foggy night in old London town, 1888. Mm-hmm. I'm pissed, in it? Ugh. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. major news today uh, obviously unless you're living under a rock you know that the biggest news of the last week or so has been the death of queen elizabeth ii um, who's the longest reigning british monarch in history and you know we, we posted it uh, on instagram to this effect but we know that She's a divisive figure. I mean, I think the monarchy itself is very divisive. Well, we're American, so it's not divisive to us. We just think it's silly. Right. But there's a lot of issues with the concepts of colonialism and empire and, you know, the kinds of things that the monarchy has done to people over the years. And, um, you know, we're not necessarily saying that we're we're sobbing about uh, her leaving us. She had a long life. It good run. Good run. But um, if you're interested in hearing more about the British monarchy and kind of the weirder parts of the monarchy, we have some episodes that really go into that. We have our The Death of Princess Diana uh, two-parter. So if you if you think that uh, Lizzie was behind the controls of, of that death that day, we kind of go into the conspiracy theory as well as some of the 
background of Diana's life and why people think that she could even have been murdered by the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Speaking of British royals, we also have Henry VIII, serial killer. Mm-hmm. And most recently, we have the ghosts and gore of the Tower of London with my dad, Paul Ferrante, as guest. And um, yeah, you know, in that one, which I hope you listen to, we, we just talked about all of the torture and, and hauntings and all the weird creepy stuff over at the Tower of London. So if you want to hear more about the monarchy, I'm sure we'll talk more about it eventually because there's a lot of scary things that have happened over the years. Um, but yeah, if, if this big major event has you wanting to learn more, those are great episodes to start with. Oh, our guillotine episode uh, had some talk of monarchs too, just not French Oh yes, monarchs. that was the French monarchy and that's a whole other can of worms. Um, so yeah, so, you know, if, if you're over in England, you're grieving, we feel you, we're sorry for your loss. Um, but you know, it's no matter what, it's a big historical event, just one more big historical event we're living through, uh, and seeing what happens at the funeral and in this period of mourning will at least be very historically interesting. We're living in interesting times, Carrie. That's what they say. I'm exhausted. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-666. Five five two nine, And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And special thanks to our top-tier patrons already joining us over there on Patreon. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. Thanks, guys. We love you. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle, who I'm going to see Motion City Soundtrack (laughs) with tomorrow night. Uh, Tonight, as you're hearing this. Um, You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.